Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so excited to be back. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From The Atlantic, they linked to an article from Hakai Magazine entitled, What Lurks Inside Shipping Containers? I know, I know. You're going to be thinking of, you know, whatever the shipping containers contain, right? I was thinking of like mold and gross things. If it's just shipping items, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're along the right tracks, except instead of it being necessarily organic, we're talking seizure-inducing methyl bromide (gasps) and carcinogenic formaldehyde. And these are only some of the poisonous chemicals scientists found inside cargo containers. Wow. Yeah, it's an issue that a lot of people really don't know about. They talk about a frightening and little known incident in 2006 in Rotterdam, Netherlands. What happened was mere moments after opening a shipping container, two workers began to feel some effects of what we now know was toxic gas. One guy fell unconscious and then convulsed with epileptic seizures, and the other one felt an irritation in his throat and began salivating uncontrollably. And in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, the medics also began to feel sore throats, irritated eyes, and hypersalivation. So thankfully, all involved survived their initial exposure, but it was a super close call because the toxic gas that had assailed them was the odorless and colorless methyl bromide and acute doses of methyl bromide can be fatal. So Ruth Hins, a doctoral candidate at Massey University in New Zealand, led a recent study cataloging the harmful airborne chemicals in a sample of containers that were shipped to New Zealand. So before sending containers on their way, workers at the port of departure will sometimes fumigate cargo boxes with pesticides, especially if the container has food or animal feed or timber. But not only that, some cargo may off-gas harmful chemicals. So, for example, if you've got product packaging, that could contain toluene, while plastics might emit benzene. And the latter benzene, it is known to damage bone marrow and cause anemia. (laughs) And there could be substances from previous cargo left inside. So the study that Hins and her colleagues did, they used probes, which they pushed through the rubber seals of the container doors to collect gas samples from about 490 sealed containers. And the investigation showed all kinds of gunk. (laughs) The Customs Authority staff found methyl bromide in 3.5% of the sealed containers. They found formaldehyde in 81% of the wow. containers wow. and ethylene oxide in 4.7%. And that's just naming a few. They found some of the measured concentrations were high enough to cause an acute reaction that triggers immediate symptoms. But in practice, it is unusual for a worker to come into direct contact with toxic gases at such elevated levels. Instead, there's a more common but still notable risk from repeat exposure to low concentrations. And chronic contact with these chemicals can potentially increase the risk of cancer or cause psychiatric problems, for example. Yeah. Can you imagine being the dock worker where like the lady's coming up and she syringes some air out of the container and then is like, no worries. I'm not doing this for any reason. Y'all go back and do your job now. <laughs> like, I 
think I'd be cool with that. No, but at least it would be addressing the problem as opposed to like, I'm not even going to put a syringe in there for anything. <laughs> well, and you're talking about like chronic exposure, things like the methyl bromide yeah. where they're like, oh, we put that in there on purpose. So it's like, yeah. OK, and then you vent it and then you take the stuff out. But there's got to be some residue on the stuff. Like Absolutely. all these consumer yeah. products that you went and coated with methyl bromide. What happens yep. to them? Are the rest of us being exposed? <laughs> like, I just, mm, that's very, you know. <laughs> Something to chew on on this uh, hot and hot, hot, hot month. Right. Huh? <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from BBC.com, and it's titled, How Colors Affect the Way You Think. Hmm. Ooh. A few years ago, a strange trend started to sweep through prisons in Europe and North America. They began painting some of their cells pink. It became so common that in 2014, one in every five prisons and police stations in Switzerland had at least one detention cell that was painted a garish flamingo pink. (laughs) The decor wasn't intended as an aesthetic choice or to make millennial offenders feel more comfortable, but rather to leverage a well-known scientific study from the 1970s. That's when researcher Alexander Schoss persuaded a naval correctional facility to paint a few of its detention cells pink, theorizing from his own experiments that the color might positively influence occupants' behavior, soothing and calming their agita. The results he achieved suggested he was right. A memorandum written by the Bureau of Naval Personnel stated confines needed only 15 minutes of exposure to the pink cell for their aggressive behavior and potential for violence to abate. Tests in other detention centers appeared to back up his findings, and once they were published in 1979, the shade he used began being deployed for its mood-changing properties in jails around the world. Hmm. The pink tone, officially designated P618, has become known by various names around the world where it has been used from drunk tank pink to cool down pink. (laughs) I like drunk tank pink. Yeah. (laughs) There's just one problem. Shoss's results have never been successfully replicated. A study at the Eustivolzugsanstalt Poschwies in Switzerland involving 59 male inmates found that there is no difference between white and pink prison cells on prisoner aggression. Aww. Even if the apparent tranquilizing effect of drunk tank pink is in doubt, there is evidence that color can influence our behavior in some surprising ways without us realizing. For example, some colors can be used to compel us into taking action. See research comparing the number of times a hitchhiker whose vehicle had broken down was picked up by passing cars. When the stricken traveler, actually played by one of the research team, wore a red shirt, she was picked up more often than wearing other colors. Huh. Red has been shown to generate more immediate emotional responses, though perhaps this is due to what's known as the Berlin Cave Theory. Put simply, they found that red was always the third color term to evolve in the almost 100 languages they studied after white and black. Then again, color can also be deployed to demoralize. One of the locker rooms at the University of Iowa's football stadium was notoriously painted pink, including the urinals, in an attempt to nibble away at the visiting team's competitive spirit, based on Strauss's experiments. So they they basically wanted to, like, emasculate them into cowardice? Yeah. Exactly how effective it was is still an open question. The statistics seem to indicate that while the pink room was in use, the Iowa Hawkeyes had a higher than average home win rate, but there could be many other reasons for that record. 
Experiments have also suggested that monotonous tasks like proofreading can be more effectively achieved in red offices, while creative tasks such as essay writing are better done in blue rooms. Mm. Others suggest that certain personality types such as introverts might be more susceptible to external influences such as the color of their surroundings. Hmm. One thing that red seems to convey fairly consistently is sweetness. One study of more than 5,300 people from around the world found that red-colored drinks were most likely to be regarded as the sweetest, no matter where the participants came from. Marie Wright, chief global flavorist at ADM Nutrition, a multinational food and drink processor, recalls a particular product test for a strawberry flavor the company had devised. When Wright and her colleagues brightened the redness of the liquid rather than upping its sugar content, the participants began reporting it was tasting sweeter. Huh, okay. like a hummingbird. Yeah, Wright says, it's just like a bright red apple. Before you've bitten into it, you expect it to be sweeter. Mm-hmm. She says that brightening the color can trick the brain so much that it has allowed them to lower sugar levels in some recipes by 10 to 20%, huh. although the results from these tests have not been published in any academic journals to date. Another study looked at how the color of a wine bottle label influenced the way volunteers perceived the flavor of the red wine within. Red and black labels, for example, made it more likely that they would describe the wine as tangy. Hmm. Other studies have shown that colors can directly impact performance, especially among children. When eight- and nine-year-olds conducted a series of tasks in the presence of different shades, academics found their overall performance was significantly worse around red versus gray, which was used as a baseline. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a trend in my kids' school of putting blue fabric over the fluorescent lights. And some of that is color, and some of that I think is just everybody hates fluorescent lighting. (laughs) And so, you know, the the lighting, the flickering, and the tone of the light itself is a separate issue. But yeah, they they make now blue rectangle fabric swatches that are the exact size, and they have little hooks on them to go over the standard fluorescent lighting that you find in classrooms. Like, you can just buy that as a product now because they're so common. Wow. That's cool, honestly. Yeah, it kind of has, like, a nice, like, harem kind of feel to it, which is not the word I'd want to associate right, with right. classrooms. That's not so what I'm gonna going to walk for, that back. But, yeah. but, you know, like, this boho sort of feel. Yeah, right? and it, it does. It makes the room more pleasant. Like, you can go in there and be like, mm. oh, yeah, this is a little more chill. I don't feel quite so glary and bright in here. Yeah. Yeah, I buy it. <laughs> I have really been enjoying colors lately. Like, it's kind of an interesting new thing where I'm just, like, letting myself be a little bit more affected by them. I feel like there's definitely a personal, like, how much you pay attention component of it, too. Sure, uh, yeah. But I'm sure it has, like, all sorts of unconscious effects that we don't even know. And like they said, I think there's probably some subjectivity on, like, what colors work best for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yeah, your societal context as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Find your color palette, man. Just- yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. This next article is called Squarespace from JSTOR Daily. And it's a fun little look at the history of a number puzzle that I'm sure you guys have seen a version of. It's the flat square of tiles with one space permanently empty so you can rearrange them into numerical Mm. order. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes they make a little picture. But it turns out that this puzzle was actually the very first one that we know of to inspire a full-blown national craze all the way back in 1880. It's sometimes called the gem puzzle, the boss puzzle, or the magic square, but mostly it's known as the 15 puzzle because the original version involved putting the numbers 1 to 15 in numerical order. And like any craze that suddenly finds itself everywhere all at once, there has been a bit of debate about the puzzle's origins with most modern sources claiming that chess prodigy and games enthusiast Sam Lloyd invented it. 
And this guy was basically like the Will Shorts of his time. One British newspaper dubbed him the Prince of Puzzles. He had (sighs) regular columns in nationwide magazines with thousands of devoted readers, and he was privately commissioned to design puzzles by everyone from P.T. Barnum to the MetLife Insurance Company. (laughs) And Lloyd himself did claim in his biography about 10 years after the craze to be the inventor of the puzzle. But there are several reasons why we can be certain that it wasn't him, which are documented in great detail by historians (laughs) Jerry Slocum and Dick Sonneveld. And he tried it. Yeah. (laughs) The article lays it all out, but largely it boils down to things like he was completely involved in chess at the time and hadn't yet expanded into other puzzle types. And he didn't live anywhere near Boston, where the first newspaper ads for the puzzle started to appear. And just for good measure, he was accused of plagiarism by other colleagues for other work. So he's not the most (laughs) trustworthy guy when it comes to what he did and didn't invent. Nice. Instead, Slocum and Sonneveld have traced the game back to a postmaster in upstate New York named Noyes Chapman, who gave homemade versions of the toy to his friends and family. Chapman's son then gave a copy to a married couple in Rhode Island who gave it to friends in Hartford, Connecticut, where somehow a copy of it landed in the hands of a student at the American School for the Deaf. And this is key to the puzzle's explosion because at the time, students at the school would frequently manufacture and sell small objects for pocket money. Oh. Which, if we're being honest, it was kind of partly because the attitude in the 1880s was like, if you're deaf, you're not going to be able to get a normal job, so you'd better start learning now how to Etsy yourself out of poverty, right? (laughs) Brutal. Well, (laughs) that was the 1880s for you. I mean, it's also the 2020s because Etsy yourself out of poverty anyway. (laughs) Yeah, but you can work online at least. If you're deaf, now you can work on a computer. Nobody even knows. That's fair. But so one of the deaf students traveled to Boston to see a woodworker named Matthias Rice for the express purpose of mass manufacturing this little number toy. And Rice took the gig, but the puzzle proved so popular that he couldn't keep up with demand and copycat products began appearing first all over the East Coast and then all over the country. And the thing about this puzzle was you had to have a physical copy to play it, but it was easy to take the tiles in and out and reset them, which meant that newspapers could print a particular starting point each day as a challenge for their readers. And so you got that social component of everybody playing the same game Mm. each day, just like the recent Like Wordle. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, there were, of course, easier and harder starting points. But the most famous starting point was known as 131514 which was laid out in almost complete perfection with just the last two numbers swapped, 13, 15, 14. And people were absolutely losing their minds over this particular layout because it looks like it should be so easy, right? It's almost solved, but no one could do it. (gasps) One dentist in Massachusetts even ran an advertisement offering a $25 set of teeth as a prize to anyone who could solve <laughs> the fourteen fifteen transposition. Wow. <laughs> and then later he ran another ad offering both the teeth and $100 cash. And this was the 1880s. Like $100 was a lot of money. Not to mention a full set of teeth. I know. But so by March of 1880, just two months after it had exploded onto the national scene, People were so obsessed with this game that the New York Times ran an editorial about how the 15 puzzle was destroying society. (laughs) (laughs) They said, sorry, things really don't change. No, no, they don't. (laughs) They said, quote, neither age nor sex is spared by it, and it now threatens our free institutions 
Inasmuch as from every town and hamlet, there is coming up a cry for a strong man who will stamp out this terrible puzzle at any cost of constitution or freedom. Wow. The article also includes several examples of contemporary poems people wrote about the game's allure, such as William goes a courtin' with her silent sits, both engaged <laughs> in sortin', wooed in little bits, not a word they utter, curious kind of courtin', now and then they mutter, 13, 15, 14. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That is kind of my idea of a good date, if you're being honest. <laughs> exactly. Like, that's how relationships are now. You both sit next to each other on your phones. Occasionally, you show a meme. It's like, you know. <laughs> but so, as you may have guessed, the arrangement that ends in 13, 15, 14 is mathematically unsolvable, as are about 50% of the possible tile arrangements in the 15 puzzle. The proof for this was first published in the American Journal of Mathematics in late 1879, before it had even really gotten off the East Coast. And, huh. you know, one assumes that the dentist must have known this before he offered the prize. But the mathematician William Woolsey Johnson did offer one loophole solution in that if you rotate the square a quarter turn so that it's oriented like a diamond, it is possible to get them to line up along what are effectively the diagonals from that starting point. More recently, though, in 2018, mathematicians Spencer Hurd and David Troutman revisited the 15 puzzle within the framework of something known as the Knight's Tour, which is about creating a path on a chessboard in which the knight visits each square exactly once using its typical L-shaped movement. And that, at least according to this article, explains a little more clearly than those 1879 mathematicians did why 13, 15, 14 is impossible, and, quote, why we might care in the first place. I'll leave it up to the listener to decide whether they care enough about algebraic <laughs> ephemera to dig that deeply into it. But, I mean, it's good to know that somebody knows the answer at any rate. <laughs> also, fun little related tidbit here at the end of the article. You know, in case you were thinking to yourself, it's kind of hypocritical for the New York Times to be slamming a popular puzzle when they're pretty darn famous for their daily crossword puzzle and just recently bought Wordle. Well, it turns out that the 15 puzzles craze was pretty much a direct predecessor to what happened when the crossword puzzle was invented about 30 years later. Huh. People mm. went wild for them, too. Suddenly, every newspaper in the country was printing a crossword puzzle, and there was even a Broadway musical called Puzzles of 1925 that featured a scene set in a crossword sanatorium full of people who had lost their minds trying to solve them. Oh, no. <laughs> and once again, at the time, the New York Times denounced crossword puzzles as basically responsible for everything wrong with American readers. But of course, <laughs> by 1942, the Times caved to the pressure and introduced its own daily crossword, which has since gone on to earn the paper millions in revenue, mm -hmm. which obviously has parallels to the recent Wordle purchase. And if we extrapolate forward, I think we can expect the New York Times to buy out Xbox sometime in the distant future, you know? <laughs> If only. I can imagine New York Times launching their own metaverse, and it's just people arguing with each other the entire time. Oh, for sure. I mean, they definitely have, they lean a little more towards, like, word and number puzzles and not shoot them up. Yeah. You know, there's time. You can imagine, like, the New York Times Halo challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, the Smithsonian Magazine is going to take us on a small little detour around how Disney propaganda shaped life on the home front during World War II. Ooh. Are you guys aware of some of the propaganda films or efforts that Disney made during the time? I know they made them. Yeah, I know about Dr. Seuss. I didn't know about Disney. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they have a little bit of Dr. Seuss in here. But if you have the time, I highly recommend going to check out the article itself because they have embedded some of the actual animated shorts that are really difficult to find, in part because Disney doesn't like to talk about this. Sure, I can imagine. imagine. (laughs) So Donald Duck was the biggest Disney star at the time. He wore khakis as a United States Army recruit. Minnie Mouse recycled leftover bacon grease to make explosives. Wow, America. (laughs) And even though World War II essentially saved the Disney studio from financial ruin, Disney has long been reluctant to revisit its wartime history. It's not a story the company tells, says Kirsten Komorowski, the executive director of the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. Nevertheless, this little-known chapter in entertainment history unfolds in this new exhibition. It's called The Walt Disney Studios and World War II. You can see it at the Museum of Flight in Seattle, and it has 550 photos, drawings, prints, and video clips that demonstrate how Disney artists turned their energies from fantasy fair to propaganda. The Disney lot in Burbank, California, was converted into a military base almost overnight. All it took was a phone call from Washington, D.C. to order the company to make room for 500 personnel from an anti-aircraft unit. Around 700 actually showed up with vehicles, communications, camouflage, and 3 million rounds of ammunition in tow. And Disney also signed a $90,000 Navy contract, agreeing to make 20 training films on topics like how to spot enemy planes. (laughs) The home of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs soon saw uniformed soldiers marching down the studio's dopey drive. And then by 1943, upward of 90% of Disney's work was related to the war effort. Wow. And, you know, despite viewing himself as a patriot, company co-founder Walt initially had some misgivings about politicizing his product. According to Wallace Duell, a member of the Wartime's coordinator office, he told a Treasury Department official, quote, Disney is fearful of being labeled as a propagandist in the public mind, with consequent damage to his reputation as a whimsical, non-political artist. (laughs) So it was pragmatic as well as patriotic motives that fueled Disney's eventual wartime involvement. Even though we see these movies as popular today, Fantasia, Pinocchio, and Bambi all logged early box office losses upon their release. In Europe, the war had all but closed movie theaters, which shrunk the global markets. And at home, Dumbo narrowly missed being named Time Magazine's 1941 Mammal of the Year, which was a play on the magazine's Person of the Year franchise. But then Pearl Harbor happened, and Dumbo got bumped off the cover in favor of General Douglas MacArthur. So if war was getting to be a problem for Disney, naturally converting to wartime production was kind of a solution. So what exactly did Disney do? Well, they designed emblems for the military. They produced propaganda films and lent its iconic characters' likenesses to different government agencies, among other activities. The studio provided training films and educational shorts. They even had Disney-designed nose art, like characters from Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, on aircraft fuselage. I I know I've seen them before, but I didn't realize that some of them were, like, licensed and sanctioned. Right. They were (laughs) legally put there. That wasn't like Calvin peeing on a truck where some dude did it. It (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It was legit. And Bethany Bemis, a scholar at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, whose research focuses on Disney's impact on American culture, she's quoted as saying, 
The insignia were extremely effective for Disney as a morale booster. Essentially, they were a reminder of home that soldiers got to carry into battle. Hmm. But it may have coalesced in 1943 when Der Fuhrer's Face, which is a cartoon starring Donald Duck, it's kind of the centerpiece of the exhibition, and it is linked in the article where you can see it in its entirety, which I highly recommend. Basically, it shows Donald Duck stuck in a nightmare where he's forced to toil in a German arms factory and is forced to repeatedly salute fascist leaders. If you've ever wanted to hear Donald Duck say Heil Hitler, it's in the animation. And he has this like swastika laden alarm clock. It shows how the creature comforts are few and far between. He tries to sneak a cup of coffee, which is verboten. Mm -hmm. He gnaws on a terrible slice of bread. He sprays a little bacon and egg scented perfume in his mouth to savor (laughs) something nice. (laughs) It's got a marching band featuring Axis musicians with what the article calls exaggerated facial features. But Uh, y'all, it's, (laughs) yeah, but they're saying Heil Heil right into Fuhrer's face. It's insane. Wow. He basically starts hallucinating that the bombshells he's assembling turn into snakes and musical instruments, kind of in line with sort of the Dada-ist stuff that you find in like Fantasia mm-hmm. or some of their other early trippy stuff. But finally, Donald wakes up in his own bed, clad in stars and striped pajamas, because yeah. of course, and then he hugs his model Statue of Liberty yeah. and declares, am I glad to be a citizen of the United States of America? Okay, <laughs> it's heavy handed, right? It was yeah. definitely influenced by Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times and The Great Dictator. But it won the 1943 Oscar for Best Short Subject Cartoon. So, (laughs) you know, it's insane the level of effort and product that Disney contributed. And if we were to see these kinds of short films on Disney+, Plus, spoiler alert, you probably won't. No. (laughs) But they would come with a warning that kind of primes you for what you're going to see is uh, not woke at all. (laughs) A product of its time. A product of its time, but certainly worth the look-see. Yeah, I mean, you also have to kind of think about, like, what Disney was for them back then. Like, we think of it as like, oh, well, that's for, like, really little kids. But, like, can Mm. you imagine if somehow, like, if they put Pickle Rick on a bomb, (laughs) like, soldiers would think that was awesome. You know, they are having a lot of trouble recruiting right now, so a partnership with Rick and Morty might do the trick. Like, that's what I'm saying. I think, like, if you you get into the mindset of, like, this was entertainment for them legitimately, so, like, I don't know. I I can see it if I put it in that light, you know? That was almost too real. (laughs) You're like, no, they're going to do that now. Stop it. Yeah, yeah. Don't Uh, let them hear us. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from the New York Times, and it's titled, Why Woodpeckers Don't Mind Hitting Trees With Their Faces. <laughs> I, I just pictured like a... a Sorry, I just pictured a woodpecker just like bashing his head against a wall and looking dazed at a friend and be like, no, nah, man, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I like it. That's fun. 
<laughs> but like literally though <laughs> that kind of is what they do yeah. uh, at the top of this image or at the top of this article there is a very slow moving gif of a woodpecker winding back and then oh. just smashing its beak into a piece of wood only one time it's very slow-mo but you see the entire head kind of ripple oh. i'm sure we could loop it and put it over some like headbanger metal Oh, it would totally work. <laughs> so for years, the prevailing theory has been that structures in and around a woodpecker's skull absorb the shocks created during pecking. Sam Van Wassenberg, a biologist at the University of Antwerp, says blogs and information panels at zoos all present this as a fact that shock absorption is occurring in woodpeckers. Woodpeckers have even inspired the engineering of shock-absorbing materials and gear like football helmets. What? But now, yeah, apparently. <laughs> but now, after analyzing high-speed footage of woodpeckers in action, Dr. Van Wassenberg and colleagues are challenging this long-held belief. When a woodpecker slams its beak into a tree, it generates a shock. If something in a woodpecker's skull were absorbing these shocks before they reached the brain, the way a car's airbag absorbs shock in an accident before they reach a passenger, then on impact, a woodpecker's head would decelerate more slowly compared with its beak. With this in mind, the researchers analyzed high-speed videos of six woodpeckers, three species, two birds each, hammering away into a tree. They tracked two points on each bird's beak and one point on its eye to mark its brain's location. <laughs> They found that the eye decelerated at the same rate as the beak, and in a couple of cases even more quickly, which Ooh. meant that at the very least, the woodpecker was not absorbing any shock during pecking. <laughs> Hardcore. Yeah. Dr. Van Wassenberg said that if woodpeckers were absorbing some of the shock they were trying to deliver to the tree, it would be a waste of precious energy for the birds. Woodpeckers have undergone millions of years of evolution to minimize shock absorption. Maja Mielke, a biologist at the University of Antwerp and a co-author of the study, added that like a hammer, a woodpecker's skull is really optimized for pecking performance. But with one mystery solved emerged another. How do woodpecker brains withstand that repeated shock? So to calculate the pressure in the bird's skulls, the researchers created a computational model based on pecking movement and skull shape and size, and they found that the pressure created was far below what would cause a concussion in a primate. In fact, the birds would have to hit a tree at twice their current speed, or hit wood four times as stiff to sustain a concussion. Dr. Van Wassenberg says, We forget that woodpeckers are considerably smaller than humans. Smaller animals can withstand higher decelerations. Think about a fly that hits a window and then just flies back again. <laughs> but the findings don't answer all questions about the birds. For instance, how a woodpecker maintains such stiffness between its skull and its beak during pecking, and what other factors may be involved that could mitigate possible damage to the brain. Ryan Felice, an evolutionary biologist at University College London, who also was not involved in the study, said, You have to think about the complexity of these systems. It's not just bones and muscle, but maybe the amount of fluid in the brain and blood pressure, and even the ability to heal damaged neurons. Yeah, I hate to say it, we're going to have to cut open some woodpecker heads. No! <laughs> <laughs> like, like, it feels like, oh, we did some high-speed video and we looked at some bones. Like, at the very least, put them in an MRI, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, we, we want to know about the laser or sonar to, you know, map this out without having to cut them open. Come on, Chad. I, I'm just, you know, I'm going to the most efficient way. You're right. We put them in an MRI. It's more expensive, but we should do it that way. <laughs> you know, some fancy water displacement machine. Yeah. Just like... <laughs> Make it seem like a spa. Aww. Or we could just ask. Anybody thought about that? Like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> see what Good the point. woodpecker says. Hey, bird brain. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, I poked a little fun at them before. So to balance it out, I now have an article from the New York Times. But <laughs> before we get into it, let me ask you all, how much do you know about the Elgin Marbles? What? Uh... No, nothing. Nothing. All right. So full disclosure, the only reason I knew anything about them prior to this article is because of a comedy bit by James Acaster, which if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend. Just Google <laughs> James Acaster Elgin Marbles. But long story short, the Elgin Marbles are a set of statues made of marble that are currently in the British Museum and which were originally looted from Greece and or transported from Greece, depending on whether you are Greek or British. And the Greek government has repeatedly said, we'd like those back, please. And the British government has repeatedly said no. <laughs> and while these statues are definitely not the only thing that the British Museum refuses to give back to its former victims of imperialism, they are probably the most high-profile example that continues to generate the most controversy. Like, even up to when Brexit happened and Britain basically was like, okay, we're now going to renegotiate all these trade treaties with all these countries on our own. Greece was like, cool, we're not negotiating with you until you give us back the Elgin marbles. Like, this is a big sticking point for them. And because both sides are really dead set on what they want, some people have set out to engineer a decidedly unorthodox compromise, namely the robot gorilla campaign to recreate the Elgin marbles. What? Mm. Yes. Wait, now, wait that the is... deeper this goes, the weirder it gets. Now, that is gorilla with a G-U-E, so it's not quite as cool as it could be. But oh, okay. All right. It's still pretty cool. What they're doing is Roger Michelle, the executive director of the Institute of Digital Archaeology, has worked with his colleagues to create a 3D machining device that is large enough, strong enough, and delicate enough to carve life-size replicas of the statues out of marble from the exact same mountains in Athens that the original statues would have come from. Mm. So these things originally came from the Parthenon. And just for a little extra background, because I certainly didn't know the whole story, control of the Parthenon had been switching back and forth for several centuries between the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Christians, the Muslims, until in 1687, it was being used as a munitions depot by the Turkish army while they were <sighs> under siege by the Venetians. The munitions exploded, killing hundreds of people, tearing off the roof of the building and shattering 28 columns. That's basically why it looks like it does today. Like the Parthenon was in great condition up mm -hmm. until 1687. But once it was so badly damaged, everybody was kind of like, ah, the building's no good anymore. The locals started looting the rubble for building materials. The Turkish soldiers started using the statues for target practice. Like it went downhill real fast. So enter Lord Elgin, which is why the British refer to them as the Elgin marbles and why the Greeks understandably prefer to call them the Parthenon marbles. Elgin was appointed to a diplomatic post in Constantinople. He looked at what was going on in the Parthenon and was like, well, someone should do something about that. So he asked the Ottoman officials if he could remove some of the material in order to preserve what was left. They kind of didn't care. They gave him a vaguely worded permission slip. And he went in and cut up and carted off most of what remained, including not only 17 statues, but also these huge sections of carved friezes from both the interior and exterior surface. Like, he basically skinned the entire architecture. Ah. And, you know, he said he intended to preserve it, but he also intended to decorate his country house in Scotland with it. So it's kind of debatable already. But two things happened. First, the ship carrying most of them sank, and it took two years to recover them from the bottom of the ocean. 
Second, Elgin himself was captured shortly after as a prisoner of war for three years. And during that time, he lost his fortune, his wife, and, the article notes, the tip of his nose. Which they say was either due to syphilis or the mercury treatments he took for asthma. Oh, dear. None of which is relevant to the statues. It feels like they're just kind of dunking on him. (laughs) Because he was now broke and had no nose and had no country house to put his statues in, he sold all of them to the British Museum for 35,000 pounds, which is about $4.3 million today, or Eesh. about half of what he'd paid to remove and transport them in the first place. Dang. So, of course, you follow that provenance. The British Museum says, look, we acquired these legitimately. We paid for them. The Ottoman Empire gave him permission to take them. And the Greeks say, no, they were an invading force and never yeah. had the right to give that permission in the first place. Mm-hmm. And the Brits say, mm, after 400 years of occupation, are they really still an invading force or is the country <laughs> just theirs at that point? You know, <laughs> so <laughs> it's controversial. But Roger Michel's position on the controversy is clear. He intends for his replicas, once they're finished, to go to the British Museum so that the originals can go back home to Athens. Yeah. And You know, he realistically expects that the British Museum will not accept them. But he hopes that this will at least force them to admit that the excuses they've been using don't hold any water. Quote, if we take the British Museum at its word, the only attributes of the marbles that matter to the museum are its physical qualities and the extent to which they reveal the history and aesthetics of antiquity. And both of these are achieved with the replicas. The British Museum has also claimed, by the way, that keeping the statues in Britain will protect them from Athens' apparent acid rain problem. Though, of course, the Greek government has no plans to put them outside. Like, it's this very, (laughs) you're not good enough to take care of these, so we're going to keep holding them. Which is very much the British Museum's MO. Like, this is only one of many things they're doing this with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But their attitude is also like, look, if we give these back... We got to give back everything. Like yeah. everything we have came mm-hmm. from a country that we took over a couple hundred yep. years ago. That's a dangerous so, precedent for them. Yeah. Which, of course, they're like, everyone's like, yes, that is what you need to do. <laughs> <laughs> they also officially refused to allow Michelle to scan the statues with LIDAR in order to make his 3D models. But he and his colleague just entered the museum as tourists and did it anyway with plain old iPads. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> So once the full set is complete, he plans to make a second set that shows the statues as they would have existed back then, with the various damaged sections restored, as well as with the painted exteriors that we now know these statues historically had. And, you know, I have to say, while I agree with him that the British government is never going to really accept his replicas, I also think there's a pretty big contingency of people in Britain who think that they should be returned. Yeah. I think it would be a really cool fundraiser to, like, set the replicas up in a gallery right outside the British Museum and let everybody buy tickets to go see them in protest with the money going for the Greek Museum or whatever. The, the, the punchline of the James Acaster thing, the way he describes the British Museum's attitude is, finders keepers, shut up. Like, that's basically what it boils down to. And that, that, that's not a very strong argument. You have to agree. It's a threadbare excuse. I'm over it. <laughs> well, well, we'll let them know what you think. And they'll be like, oh, oh Angie said, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Those Sequoias Didn't Just Get Lucky, Satellites Spot Construction of Russian Anti-Satellite Laser, and Peruvian Whistling Vessels Are Weird. So all that and more can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. 
In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Thank you.